I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Before we get started, I want to make it clear that we will be talking about sexual assault on today's show. Some of the stories and language may be triggering to some listeners, so please use your discretion. Tennessee has a massive backlog of untested sexual assault kits. The average wait time at some labs is 10 months. Now, our state is certainly not the only one with this issue, but after years of concerns, the national spotlight has once again fallen on Tennessee. After a Memphis jogger was killed last fall, police found that the alleged perpetrator had sexually assaulted someone else a year before, and that rape kit wasn't tested until it was too late. Now, the backlog is on the mind of legislators and the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations is trying a new approach. But the question remains, how many untested kits are out there and how did we get here? WPLN's criminal justice reporter Paige Flager has been following this and she joins us now. Paige, welcome back to This is Nashville. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate you being here. So there was some recent news on lab testing. What's the latest? Yeah. So last week, uh, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation announced that in an effort to kind of reduce the turnaround times and the wait times that we're seeing uh, from our biology labs here in the state, hundreds of sexual assault kits are going to be sent to a lab in Florida. So they're basically outsourcing these kits. Um, They secured a $1.5 million in federal funding in order to make this happen. Uh, They flew out an initial set of 550 kits to the lab in Florida, and most of those came from our testing labs. We have three in the state, but the ones that are most overloaded are Jackson and Knoxville. Now, we invited TBI to join us, but they declined. So though they did give you the latest numbers, what did those show? Yeah, so they sent me numbers from an inventory from January 2023, the beginning of this year. And that inventory showed that there were nearly 1,000 rape kits that needed to be tested. That's roughly 200 more compared to the same time last year. And most of those kits were in the Knoxville and the Jackson labs. But it's important to note that, you know, that's just a point in time. These kits are coming in and being tested at different rates. Hmm. The last major comprehensive inventory actually happened back in 2014, and they found 9,000 untested kits statewide. Mm. You know, it's not only that those kits are sitting on the shelf, but it also takes time for them to get processed. So what are they saying about the turnaround times? So Nashville is showing a turnaround time of about 22 weeks, which is better than the other two or three. It's three labs in the state. Nashville is kind of leading the charge. Mm -hmm. Um, Knoxville and Jackson are closer to 40 weeks until those tests are being analyzed, which is why TBI sent more kits from the Jackson and Knoxville labs to Florida than the Nashville lab. I see these problems have been longstanding besides outsourcing some of these kits. What other reforms are being considered? Yes. So the state legislature is taking this up. There are two bills moving through the state capitol. Both were introduced by Democratic Senator London Lamar of Memphis. She's unable to join us today, but I caught up with her yesterday to ask her a couple questions about her bills. Um, She says part of the reason that she was inspired to introduce these bills was because of the Eliza Fletcher case, the jogger who was killed in Memphis. The man who killed Fletcher had sexually assaulted someone a year before, and that woman had reported it and gotten a rape kit done. 
I was really disturbed about the Fletcher case, but I was more so disturbed by the fact that the a young African-American woman came forth about the rape for this man and her rape kit was never tested. If her rape kit was tested in an adequate amount of time, then the perpetrator would have probably been in jail and then Eliza Fletcher would have been uh, alive. So what we're seeing is an inequity and a extreme backlog in people getting their rape kits tested so that we can hold people accountable to the crimes that they commit. And that's part of the reason that Lamar introduced a bill that would require a 60-day testing window for those sexual assault kits. And right now, the labs that test the kits are averaging a window that's three times that long. Mm. And, you know, Lamar introduced another bill about rape kits, too. This one was to create more reporting requirements for TBI to see how on track they are, right? Right. Yeah. So one big barrier to getting the kits done is vacancies in the labs across the state. And Lamar says that the department will need more funding to accomplish that. We have not prioritized our resources enough to ensure that these vulnerable citizens um, testing kits are done in an adequate amount of time. Um, what we have not done as a legislature is making sure that TBI has the funding to attract and retain qualified scientists to do the work. And we're seeing vacancies across all of Tennessee's labs. Um, there were 19 total vacancies for special agents and forensic scientists. Six of those positions are still open, as well as a few positions for forensic technicians, which can really hold up getting these kits mm. processed. What would she like to see these bills accomplish? Her main goal is to prioritize these cases and these survivors across our state. And that looks like putting more resources towards the department and also making sure that the TBI knows that the legislature are watching. The hope is to ensure that any victim who has the courage enough to come forth about being raped or sexually assaulted in any way, that their um, uh, cases will be uh, a priority and that we, they could be tested expeditiously and that we can put these uh, perpetrators in jail quickly and no other victim has to potentially lose their life because we have not put forth adequate resources to protect them. And besides these bills, Lamar says she'd also like to see Memphis get their own testing lab. Currently, that city, which is the second most populous in the state, sends their kits over to Jackson, Tennessee, which takes the kits for basically the entire west side of the state. She thinks that a lab in Memphis would help cut down on wait times and keep that Tennessee, that West Tennessee lab out of the backlog. That's WPLN's criminal justice reporter, Paige Flager, who is our lead producer for today's episode. Paige, as always, thanks for your reporting. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from a survivor about what it's like to come forward and embark on the long wait for answers. All while knowing that's justice is hard to come by. Join us for the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. A reminder for our listeners, we're discussing sexual assault on today's show. Some of the stories and language may be triggering to some listeners, so please use your best discretion. 
So we've established that Tennessee has a serious backlog of sexual assault kits. Hundreds of kits sit untested for months upon months. As time goes on, the possibility of prosecution for the assailants becomes less and less likely. So how does this feel for survivors? What is the process like? My next guest is here to share her personal experience. Danielle, thank you for being with us today. Welcome to thank This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you being here. You know, a note to our listeners, we're only using Danielle's first name to protect her privacy. So, you know, I know that this is very, very hard for you. And again, thank you for being here. But, you know, as much as you're comfortable with, can you tell us the circumstances of your assault? Sure. Uh, I went out uh, in Nashville with some friends for a birthday party. And there were a lot of people there that just from different groups of life. So we didn't know everyone. I was there. Um, ultimately, uh, there was this individual who I had never met before, um, only really said hi to that evening as we were getting acquainted, mm-hmm. didn't speak really the rest of the evening. And then at the end of the night, we all went back to our neighborhood and this individual, for whatever reason, decided to also come to our neighborhood. Uh, I decided it was time to go home and he suggested he walk me home And we had been drinking, it's no secret. Um, And he proceeded to follow me in my house and I said, okay, thank you, good night. And truly before I knew it, uh, the assault was happening. Mm. Um, It was in my house, in my own personal space. Um, He audio recorded the entire incident. Um, He was coached to do that um, by, someone in his life at some point, um, formerly playing in the NFL, Hmm. um, that has come to light. So, um, you know, this happened, it happened quickly. Um, you can hear on the audio tape that I even say, no, please stop. This hurts. Um, and before I knew it, it's over and he's left and you're just kind of sitting in the space going, did, did this really just happen? And it did. It did. Yeah, it did. Uh, Again, thank you for coming on and sharing that with us. Tell me, how did you make the decision to report what happened? Sure, that was a process for me. It wasn't immediate. Um, It really took some time talking with my therapist, who I'm lucky to have in my life already, uh, talking to a couple friends that were with me that night, and ultimately going, this is important and I matter and this is not okay. And so I decided to report it because I deserve more than to stay silent about this Mm -hmm. in my life. I understand that the police came to your house, right? Yes. Uh, MMPD sent three large male cops to my house to discuss my assault. Well, how did it make you feel? When the cops arrived? You know, I was equipped to handle it at the time. Uh, I think it's a not a great approach. Hmm. Um, you know, you know what, it's not a 911 call to respond. This was a, hi, I would like to report a sexual assault. Okay, great, we're going to send officers to your home. So I would say knowing what the topic is about, maybe the approach should be, let's include a female. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So tell me, after, after you were interacting with the police, can you tell us what it was like for you going through the sexual assault exam? Yeah, it was um, kind of a blur, but one of the one of the police officers drove me to the safe clinic with the sexual assault center, and I, I do want to mention that he was incredible on the ride over there. Um, his conversation, you know, he just said, "You're brave. You're doing the right thing, and I'm here for you." Um, but once I got there, I met um, the nurse that or the nurse that ultimately did my kit and my advocate at the center, both were fantastic. Um, it is sort of a dehumanizing experience. Mm-hmm. You know, you're having people you've never met ask you questions. You're repeating the event over and over again. Um, and then they're doing a physical exam. So it's it's very uncomfortable. What did they do to help you feel comfortable? I think the main thing is... You know, they never pressed me on anything. It was very much what you want to talk about is what we're going to talk about. And, you know, when the detective got there to to further discuss what had happened, even he was great. I mean, he was very much like, this is the process. I'm going to ask you this. Are you okay? And so it was very much, I very much felt seen mm-hmm. and heard. Mm-hmm. And supported where I wasn't. I didn't feel pressured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so differently. So you felt had a bit of a different experience at the sexual assault center than you did when the in my home when the three large policemen arrived. Uh, correct. Okay. Yeah. Now I'd, I'd like to bring in my next guest. Lorraine McGuire is the vice president of development and marketing at the sexual assault center in Nashville. Lorraine, thank you again for being with us. Thank you for having me. So you work with survivors like Danielle. Tell me, how often do you meet people with similar experiences? Every one of them has so much in common and yet are so different, Uh, but all the time. uh, I do meet people. Danielle's a little bit different. We actually knew each other before I even worked at Sexual Assault Center and met up for lunch and she shared this story and she knew that I worked there. Uh, So it was especially personal for me this time to see a friend of mine Uh, It made me so happy to hear the positive experience that she had coming through the safe clinic because we always say that we can provide what she says she experienced, which is a trauma-informed environment. But it is so personal and, but all the time you hear stories like this daily and meet people face-to-face who are brave enough to share their story. Tell me about the services at the Sexual Assault Center. Like, what do you provide there for people like Danielle who come there for help? So she mentioned, uh, well, we we provide kind of the 50,000 foot view. We have partnerships with the Metro Nashville Police Department. Uh, We are part of a sexual assault response team that meets regularly to make sure Everybody in the city who's a major player in this knows the gaps. So the detective that she's talking about has worked closely with Sexual Assault Center and was trained on how to handle. So it makes us so happy because, you know, usually you hear stories of sometimes police asking questions like, well, what were you wearing? And like, what did you do to to make this happen? Mm -hmm. And so for her to have an experience and knowing that we help to influence all the way back from before we were even involved is exactly what we are trying to accomplish and exactly why it's important. So 
that's one of the things in the community that we're helping to, but that trauma-informed experience that's not in a hospital, it's a non-hospital environment to get the rape kit done, I think is really important. Having an advocate there to literally hold your hand while this is happening. And the only job an advocate has is to be there for the victim. That's their only job is to explain what's going to happen, explain every little detail. But then after the exam, advocacy services of how can we help you file for victim's compensation? How can we help you file a police report? How can we, could we go to court with you if you're lucky enough to get that far in the process? Uh, follow-up appointments, follow-up doctor's appointments, medication needed. Uh, So really just that. And then Danielle said she was fortunate enough to have a therapist, but if she didn't, we provide ongoing therapy for the trauma as well. And then we have, we go beyond that and have a program that works with bars on how Mm. bartenders, you know, can have bystander intervention training and drug detection coasters and all kinds of things. So it's really a a community-wide approach so the experience that they have isn't just when they go into the center, but they experience it in the community before they even make it there. You know, Danielle, does this match your experience? It does. <clears throat> Excuse me. It does. Uh, you know, I, I was even offered a counselor outside of my therapist through the sexual assault center. And we spoke a couple of times um, really just to make sure that I was having the, the right, not the right, but I will use that, the right conversations with my therapist about processing this and having the closure to move on, uh, whatever the outcome of the legal process should be. And Rand, I'm curious, how many, because what you all are offering is a a community of support for people. Mm -hmm. How many folks come in to use your services who may not have that support at home within friends or family who are pretty much on their own? I would say most. Most of the people that come in do not have a wide range of support around them through friends, family, or a, a, a different therapist. Most, the advocate has to fill a lot of those gaps uh, because they don't have that wraparound support that that one needs. Mm-hmm. C- can you give us a sense of how common it is for people to come forward, make a report, and get a kit done? So... Studies have shown that sexual assault is one of the most unreported crimes. Uh, Up to 68% do not report. So the national average is people that come in to get an exam or that come in for services. Only 33% of them actually move forward with a police report. Wow. And Why? (laughs) Well, this will go into some of uh, maybe later as well, but there's shame and victim blaming So they themselves feel a lot. Every survivor I've ever talked to says, it's the questions of what could I have done to prevent this? What did I do wrong? How could I have stopped it? The shame and embarrassment of, because women our whole lives were taught, quote, how not to get raped, right? And so when it does happen, you feel like, well, clearly I didn't follow my handbook close enough. Hmm. And so, and then the way you're treated after and not believed, I mean, you know, they say he said, she said, all he has to do technically is say, I didn't do that. And sometimes that's enough. And so, and the level of prosecutions, the number of rapists that actually see jail time, especially if it's a person of power, if it's somebody you know, if it's your boss, I mean, there's all these implications. And so it's like, I'm just going to, I'm going to suck it up 
because I don't see that you, you look around and you don't see very many prosecutions mm-hmm. happening, which is a challenge. And we've done over 650 rape kits since 2018 opening in late 2018. And we've only been part of six prosecutions, six cases of those over 650 rape kits have actually gone to that. So it's not motivating for people to say, well, it's worth it. It's worth going through the shame of a, you know, having a stranger examine my naked body and take pictures of my genitals and then sitting with law enforcement to review said photos and putting yourself out there in this really big way and knowing that there's probably nothing that's going to come of that. Mm. Now, now, Danielle, you, you referred to your attacker having ties to the NFL. Mm-hmm. And Lorraine just gave us a list of reasons why people are hesitant to come out and report. Was that one of the factors that you considered? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely took into consideration, like, you know, I'm thankful to have the resources and means to carry this through. But so does he. And his may be bigger than mine. But... It almost made me want to report it more mm-hmm. because I feel like people in those positions of power or notoriety uh, probably get away with it a little bit more. And I just knew I, it, it gave me a little bit more fire. Mm-hmm. Now, you went through, you had a kit done. Mm-hmm. What has law enforcement told you about the status of your kit? Uh, my assault happened in April of 21, and unfortunately, I cannot tell you where my rape kit is. I don't know if it's ever been tested. Mm. Uh, 11 months later. A tw- we're almost at 24. Oh. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, yeah. my, my time um, is off. I have no idea where it is. And I asked. Mm. I contacted and uh, the same nurse, and I said, is there any way... We're, we're going on this show. It'd be really great to have some kind of like, here's where that is. And they said, well, if it happened after July, we have new legislation so that she could track it. And I said, well, this happened in 21. And they said, I'm sorry, then we have no idea. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Lake Alona. We're talking this hour about Tennessee's backlog of sexual assault kits. What questions do you have about the process? Do you have personal experience you'd like to share? Tweet us. At this is Nashville. And if you or someone you know is a survivor of sexual assault and is in need of help, you can call the National Sexual Assault 24-Hour Hotline. That number is 800-656-4673. Again, 800-656-4673. Three. Now, I'd like to introduce my next guest. Ilsa Connect is the Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Joyful Heart Foundation and runs the nationwide initiative End the Backlog. She joins us from Brooklyn, New York. Ilsa, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So, you know, tell us, how often do people like Danielle left in the... How often are people like Danielle? How, are they, how often are they left in the dark about the status of their kids? I was just sitting here thinking this exact thing. Um, Danielle's story is all too common, unfortunately. We hear from survivors all the time that say they've left the hospital and never hear again where their rape kit is. And that's very detrimental to their healing process. You know, information is power and information is so important to survivors. We have survivors tell us, 
they feel like the rape kit belongs to them, that part of their body is in the rape kit. And so when they don't hear where it is or what's happening to it, it really leaves kind of a hole for them. Um, and that having information about the kit is helpful to their healing process and their well-being. Why do you think kits end up sitting on the shelf? This is a complicated problem, actually, in some ways, but in other ways, it's really simple. And it's because sexual assault is not prioritized as the violent crime that it is. These cases are often not taken seriously. And because they're not taken seriously, you know, the kit gets put on a shelf and so does a survivor, you know, figuratively. Um, it's a it's it's a lack of attention and focus on solving these crimes, I think in part because there's not a real understanding about who these offenders are. And research has shown very recently that these offenders are, are criminals who repeat over and over again. They commit all kinds of crime. They're not specialists. And they rape people they know and they rape people they don't know. And they don't stop until they're stopped. Now, your organization keeps track of kit backlogs for the entire country. So tell us, how does Tennessee compare? Correct. Tennessee has a long history, really, in um, looking at the backlog. And I think, as it was mentioned, an inventory was done back in 2014 um, and found about 9,000 kits. We're not clear exactly at this point how many of those kits are still sitting on shelves. And I'm going to say that doesn't include what was in Memphis at that time, because um, that was about 10,000 plus, right? So we're not really sure where the state stands on testing. We'd like to see another inventory done to have law enforcement open up their evidence rooms and count those kits again to know what is sitting there now, you know, and what should be sent forward. Tennessee um, last year did pass some legislation that requires a tracking system. I think that was mentioned a little bit ago, which to us is a very important piece of reform because it increases transparency around the rape kit testing process and accountability so that somebody like Danielle in the future won't be wondering where her kid is. Mm. They'll be able to sign on to a website any time of day or night and a hundred times or 10 times and know where their kid is. Now, earlier in the show, we talked about two new bills that would help reduce the number of untested kits in Tennessee. Lorraine, do you think these measures will help? I do think it's a step in the right direction. Uh, part of the thing that regardless wherever Danielle's kit is, we already know that her case was not picked up for prosecution despite having an audio recording, despite audibly being able to hear her say, no, please stop, this hurts. So I think there's a common misconception that just because a rape kit is done and even if it comes back that that leads to prosecution, automatic arrest, and it doesn't. So I think that, yes, it's a step in the right direction because at least in the case with Eliza Fletcher, where, I mean, again, that was a named, that woman that was raped by him named him. We weren't even waiting to, it was technically just to confirm, but she had named him and they knew. Mm. And so... It's just kind of like a, we have many things. There's another bill that a sexual assault center has been working on to create in every county, even possibly city, a sexual assault response team like we have here. Because bringing people together to identify gaps, like it's important for the the DA's office to come in to talk with the police department, to talk to victim advocates. So in one city where there is another one that exists, 
found out that cops were keeping the ra- the rape kits in their trunk too long hmm. and they were they were no good. They were no good. They were going bad. Wow. And that was because coming together they were having these conversations that were really important. So I think yes, there needs to be more accountability to get these. There needs to be more understanding of what sexual assault victims need what the DA's office needs and police need in order to prosecute. So it, it's just a really large mm. approach. So I hope those bills pass. I hope the SART bill passes. And then we're starting to take steps to at least have a better understanding because outside of combat, sexual assault survivors have the highest number of uh, PTSD. There's mm-hmm. the highest population of PTSD outside of combat. You know, Elsa, Lorraine was just t- telling us about the the gaps in communication between law enforcement mm-hmm. when it comes to really processing these tests. And the, the Joyful Heart Foundation, you have what you call the six-pillar approach to changing the testing process. Can you briefly, we only have a few minutes left, but can you briefly explain sure. that approach to us? Absolutely. So the six pillars are um, creating or conducting an inventory, which means to count the kits that are sitting on shelves mandating the testing of all of those kits that were found in the inventory, no matter how old they are, Um, mandating the testing of newly collected kits in a timely manner. Of course, we have those bills in Tennessee now looking at that turnaround time for the crime lab. Um, We would like to see a tracking system. That's our fourth pillar put in place. Victims' rights to know the status of their kit. Again, in Danielle's case, you know, having a victim's right on the books to know where their kit is is very important. And then funding. We want to see funding to support all of these pillars and these reforms. And that includes making sure that the crime lab has what they need. Part of the problem is lab capacity. And we have to ensure that labs have the right goals and are securing the resources necessary to be efficient in their testing and to be effective in their work to identify offenders and obviously um, for public safety. Danielle, is there anything you would like to add about how you'd like to see the system improved? You know, I I know that the decision to report is a difficult decision to make in an already complex situation. Um, And I would just say that, you know, I would report it again, God forbid, had something happened again, um, because I I choose to believe that the processes will improve over time with conversations like this. Mm. And what I would like to see is that collaborative nature between the police department and the DA's office, because my relationship and conversation... <clears throat> with the DA's office was non-existent. It's the first time you've told your story. Tell us why you wanted to come on and join us and share your experience. Mm, I hope that one person listens to this and decides she's brave enough and she's worth it to report something that happened to her. I think without talking about it, it kind of goes away. And this is one of those things that can never go away. It needs to be a priority. Women matter. I matter. My no and my attack mattered. That is Danielle. She was joined by Ilsa Connect with the Joyful Heart Foundation and the website End the Backlog. I want to thank you both for coming on to the show. I want to thank you 
for sharing with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Lorraine McGuire will stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll talk with representatives from the district attorney's office in Nashville to learn how these kits are just one piece of the puzzle for prosecuting sexual assaults. We want to hear your comments, too. So tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Our state has had long-standing problems with getting raped kits tested. New bills have been introduced to help fix this problem, but even when a survivor goes through the process of getting a kit and reporting their assault, it doesn't always mean that they'll get justice. Kits are just one piece of evidence that goes into how the local district attorney's office makes decisions to prosecute these cases. For more on that piece of this process, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Kate Melby is the chief prosecutor of adult sexual violence, and Brittany Johnson is a victim witness coordinator. They are both with the Davidson County District Attorney's Office. Kate, Brittany, thank you so much for being with us. Welcome. Thank this you for is having Nashville. us. Thank you for having us. So, you know, Brittany, you work closely with survivors and their families. Can you walk us through the process you go through working with survivors? Sure. So at the district attorney's office, we go ahead and um, any arrest that happens um, during my arrest time, I will get, once I get that, I make a call within 48 hours to update on the court process, um, court dates, reach out to victims, witnesses, um, and then I'm there with them in court from the very beginning all the way through the end till we, if we go to trial mm-hmm. on the case. Um, I am kind of the DA's right-hand person. So when you explain these steps to survivors, how, yes. how, how do they respond? Well, I start off saying it's going to be a very long process. Um, I don't want to set their expectations, you know, too high that um, – Victims have the right to a speedy trial um, or a speedy process. I want them to know that I'm in this through the long haul with them. Um, So I just let them know that it will be a lengthy process, but that I will keep them informed throughout the entire thing with court dates, um, updates on anything from the offer to the trial, walking them through every part. It, to me, it feels like you, you're kind of an, an advocate for them. It also, you're working, you know, a, m- a member of the law, law enforcement trying to prosecute. Right. So I connect them with resources as mm-hmm. well, like the Sexual Assault Center. Um, I will walk them through kind of um, if they need counseling, um, victims' compensation fund, um, just connecting them to those resources that they need as well. So there's, there's a lot of different outcomes out there that mm-hmm. could happen. How do you prepare them? for the possible outcomes? Um, I'm just honest. We try to be very transparent, Mm -hmm. um, very honest. And um, we let them know the strengths of the case as well as the weaknesses of the case. Um, And we're just upfront about that so that there's um, just an understanding of the whole process and not walking in blind or being blindsided Mm -hmm. by anything. Now, Kate, your position as as chief prosecutor of adult sexual violence is actually new. Yes. Why was it created? I think 
that after listening to all of our partners in the community and to survivors, we realized that this position, someone who works directly with all the organizations, with the detectives, to be the point person, you know, if they have questions um, about an ongoing case, you know, maybe they want to get a search warrant and then, or they're trying to decide, should we get a warrant on this or do we need more investigation? You know, just to have one point person that they can go to because before everyone in our office, you know, that's a prosecutor could do sexual violence cases. Um, and there wasn't just one dedicated prosecutor. And so I think that just to make it more efficient and to make sure that nothing is falling through the cracks and that we're all working together in the best way possible that we can serve the community. So tell me, what role do rape kits play in the prosecution of sexual assault cases? It totally depends on the type of case. Um, if you have what I would refer to as a stranger rape, essentially, where someone is raped and they have no idea who it is, they can provide a description, but they didn't know the person, obviously then you're going to need the rape kit to come back so you can match the DNA to the suspect. Um, without having a rape kit on that, you know, it would be super hard for them to make an identification that would you know, be as strong as the DNA presence. It's like crucial evidence. Right, mm -hmm. right, absolutely. But if you have someone who it's intimate partner violence or they knew them, you know, the rape kit isn't going to be as crucial. Um, of course, the more evidence we have is helpful. But if you, unless you have a situation where in an intimate partner case, they are saying, no, it flat out didn't happen. You know, the rape kit's not going to be as important as say the MLE, you know, the medical legal examination. That's going to be important to see if there are any injuries and what they told the nurse. That part is going to be what's your most important part at that mm, point. Okay. So tell us, what are some of the challenges when that you face when deciding to prosecute a case? So we typically, especially before now, did not get the file until the police decided to give us, you know, until they, they, they got their, they gave us their file. Um, and so it depends on how long it had been since we got the file, you know, because sometimes if you need phone records, but you don't get the file for a year, you know, there may be things that aren't there anymore, um, which is something that we're hoping to change. And so far, I think we have been successful at getting a lot of these cases sooner and talking about them. And, you know, I can review them and say, this is what I would like to see. Um, and so I think just the lack of evidence, because if you think about it, most, especially intimate partner rapes, which that happens a lot, um, no one's going to be there other than those two people. It's usually, of course, not going to be in front of a crowd. It's not going to be somewhere where there's surveillance. Um, and juries these days, they want surveillance on everything. They want videos. They want recordings. And sometimes, like in the case we just heard about, there are audio recordings, and that would be helpful. Um, but essentially, you know, you have to look at what do we have besides just what they say because our job is to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. And so what, the thing I want survivors to know is that if for some reason their case isn't picked up, which the case that we heard about, that happened before I even came back to the office. Um, but if a case is not picked up, that does not mean that we do not believe you. That does not mean that we don't think that what you said was valid. But our job, again, is to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and so we don't want people to have to go through the whole process and, you know, spend more time and have just... I mean, the court process can be kind of traumatic, um, and we just don't want them to have to do that if we don't think that a jury would would find them. I, I understand that, and I also understand that you were not the DA who was working on the case that we just heard about, but there was 
audio evidence Mm -hmm. presented, which he just said that juries are really hungry for, yet the DA who was in charge of that case decided not to prosecute that. Again, I'm not asking you to answer for him, but can you explain for people? It just seems real difficult for someone who's been a a survivor of sexual assault to kind of hear. I have some solid evidence, yet at the same time, it's not being prosecuted. I'm trying to. No, I, I agree completely um, with our office and with every case. It's a case by case basis. And so my job is to look at every individual case and all of the facts of that case and then make a decision from there. And so without knowing, you know, having the file in front of me on the case that we heard about, I can't say anything other than I understand her frustrations. Um, I'm, we are actually going to just double check that and relook at that case now that I'm here. Okay. Um, but I do understand that frustration. Um, okay. Thank you. You know, Lorraine McGuire with the Sexual Assault Center is still with us now. You know, you work closely with people who are waiting on their kids and understand the stresses that they go through. How would you like to see law enforcement improve their systems? There. It's such a nuanced situation, like Kate was saying, as far as, you know, the he said, she said, and the proof. I I think that if we can, if, if victims and survivors of sexual assault feel and see collaborative efforts working alongside Sexual Assault Center and truly the reputation changes from being the big burly men coming in and interrogating you as if you were the criminal, I think that goes a long way. I think that continuous trauma-informed training for law enforcement will go a long way. I think that would be the first step that I would want to see that we have. I mean, I know Metro Nashville PD, we work so closely with the sex crimes unit. I know they have a lot of work on their plate. They're hiring eight new detectives from what I understand because their average caseload is 900. Wow. But... You know, and that's why we say we believe you. It's not your fault. We're here to help because we have to focus on their healing, just knowing that they may never get the justice. And and that is very frustrating because they say he said, she said, well, all he has to do is say, I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And and so that's it, it is really difficult. But I think that would be a great first step. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kalio Lake We're talking this hour about Tennessee's backlog of sexual assault kits and how that impacts sex crime prosecutions. Send us your comments at This Is Nashville. If you or someone you know is a survivor of sexual assault and is in need of help, you can call the National Sexual Assault 24 Hours Hotline. That number is 800 656 4673. Again, That number is 800-656-4673. Now, before the break, a survivor was telling us about her experience she shared with us. And she said that her interaction with detectives left her feeling uneasy. Now, Lorraine was just talking about suggestions of having trauma-informed training for law enforcement. Kate, tell me, how do you think investigations, how do you think they can be improved? I, and I tell the detectives this to their face, I would like them to investigate all of these like it's a murder. Mm. So when you get a murder file, you know, you have so much evidence, um, usually, hopefully. And a lot of the time on these, you know, you may have a controlled phone call. 
You may have, and again, they're all doing the best that they can um, because they're so overworked and understaffed. But I want to see, you know, if she says that a rape happened and there was some bleeding, like, can you go get a search warrant and collect the bed sheets? You know, th- anything like that, that we can have like tan- something tangible to show a jury later. Because what I do is I'm always thinking, you know, ahead to that jury trial. Mm-hmm. Not that every case goes to jury trial, but that's my job is to, you know, think of down the road. Um, but I would just like them to investigate. I mean, and again, in a murder, you don't have the victim statements and you still have to come up with all the evidence. And so I think that, you know, just gathering as much evidence as you can and to realize that even if it is a quote, he said, she said, which I hate that term, but even if it is that, Sometimes that's enough. It doesn't matter. You know, if, if she's credible, if there's anything to corroborate, and I say she, it could be she, he, it could be anything. Um, but I say that because just because there is no other evidence, that doesn't mean that we cannot prosecute. It just means that there are going to be challenges that have to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Now, just letting listeners know that we invited MNPD to join us and they declined. Now, Brittany, there's a difference between speeding up the process of testing rape kits and rushing through prosecution. We know that, you know, a long time waiting can do a lot of further damage to survivors. How can they be supported as they wait for results? Absolutely. So my biggest thing is just making sure that they feel heard. What Lorraine was saying earlier, just being that support system to them because it is extremely frustrating. The court process is frustrating. It's long. Waiting on your rape kit to come back, it's long. Um, So just Believing them, knowing that I'm with them throughout this whole process, they can call me anytime with questions and I'm not going to judge them. Um, I think that's just the biggest part of it is just knowing that there's somebody else going through this with them, that they're not alone. Now, I got a question for you, Kate. You know, you're a prosecutor, you're, you're, you're a prosecutor, you're handling these cases. What advice do you have for people who may find themselves in this situation? That's tough. Um, Nashville is lucky to have so many resources available to survivors like the Sexual Assault Center, the Family Safety Center, the Amazing Victim Witness Coordinators at our office, the Gene Crow Advocacy Center. Um, we you know, try to do as much as we can collaboratively, especially now, to where they don't have to tell their story 85 times to different people for the first time they meet somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would be just to to make use of those resources, to ask the questions, you know, to don't be afraid to reach out, say they haven't heard anything. It's totally fine to call our office and say, hey, I haven't heard anything. What's going on with this case? And I mean, that's our job is to be there and to answer those questions for them. Um, and so it's just to, you know, they, they're they very strong people. And I think that they have just to take advantage of the support systems that we have here available. Do, do you have a number that somebody in, maybe in Davidson County is who's waiting on their test results they can call to find? As far as the rape kits, um, I mean, they could call the crime lab probably, but I'm not sure. Lorraine may know more about that. If they want to call our office, if they have a pending case, our office number is 615-862-5500. And they can ask for any victim witness coordinator and the victim witness coordinator can do what they can to help facilitate that conversation. Um, but if it is not a case that we have gotten yet, I, I would just call, reach out to the detective that's been assigned to their case. Now, now, Brittany, sometimes it can take two to three years for 
these to, to really come through. Tell us, what do you say to somebody when it's taking that long? Bear with us that this criminal, I actually just had a woman call me this morning. Um, her case had closed, um, but it pended for five years. Um, and her and I, we she just needed to rehash it again. So we talked about it again. Um, but it is, it's just a lengthy process. And I just let them know that I am here for you. It is frustrating. I understand that. Um, and just continuously answer their calls and answer their questions and get them updates um, as we can. Now, Lorraine, we've talked a lot about survivors who have come forward, but for any person that has experienced sexual assault, but not shared their story, what do you want them to know? Sexual Assault Center is there for people who, it doesn't matter when their assault or abuse took place. They can come for therapy. We had somebody who disclosed for the first time of her life about childhood sexual abuse at age 92 and came for her first therapy session. Mm. So it's never too late. The ongoing effects of trauma are real. What you're feeling is not, you're not crazy. It's a real thing. It's valid. And there's always, there's a way to get help to help work through some of that. And so I just want them to know whether it's group therapy, individual therapy, anything, um, it's never too late to to get the help that you that you need. I want to thank you all for coming on to the show and really talking about this with us. It's, a, it's a incredibly important and unfortunately um, not really talked about topic. And I thank you again for being here. I want to thank my guests, Kate Milby and Brittany Johnson of the Davidson County District Attorney's Office and Lorraine McGuire with the Sexual Assault Center. Again, thank you all for being on the show and for the work that you're doing. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Paige Flager, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Tony Gonzalez. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.